Welcome to the Black Sheep Podcast, brought to you by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Isaacs. We want to know what it really means to be a black sheep and work out how we can all get a bit better at going against the grain. We're going to be asking some of our favourite black sheep about the rules they've broken to get them where they are today. Black Sheep is a podcast about rules and how to break them. Just last year, Amazon scrapped its AI recruitment tool after finding out it automatically downgraded CVs belonging to women. In 2016, it was reported that a woman who, after googling unprofessional hairstyles for work, was met with images of natural afros, whereas a search for professional hairstyles for work resulted in photos of white women with tidy ponytails. Well, Josie Young, our black sheep for this week, is attempting to put a stop to all of that. Josie works at the intersection of artificial intelligence, ethics and innovation. In 2018, Josie gave a TED talk which explored the gender bias that's ingrained in the world of AI. Since Josie realised through her studies how our future lies in AI, she has dedicated her work life to making ethical and feminist improvements in that sector. She created the feminist chatbot design process and has tested it at a hackathon and at various women in tech conferences. She's currently working with the feminist internet to eradicate prejudice and the commodification of women and other intersections within AI. Hi, JC. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, it's great to be here. We normally kick off every podcast, really, by asking our guest if they think of themselves as a black sheep. Ooh, do I think of myself as a black sheep? That is such a great question. I I think I do. Um, and I think I really enjoy stepping into a room and saying something that people don't expect mm. and bringing perspectives that maybe aren't usually found in that room. So I work in the tech industry. There aren't always a lot of women in the room. They're not usually in the decision-making room. And so... For those of you who've seen me in person or seen a photo of me, I often have crazy, uh, you know, large earrings and um, I wear clothes that, um, I guess, make me stand out because I want to take up space Mm. in the room and make it clear to people that this is normal. It's normal to have women in decision making in the tech industry. Do you think as a woman in AI, you almost have to define yourself as a black sheep in order to make any waves at all? Well... I don't think you necessarily have to. I think it really depends on how how that suits personality of the person. So for me, that's something that I feel really, really like passionate about doing. I want to stand out. I, I want to, you know, make people think differently about the tech industry because, you know, I'm in it mm. um, and I can force them to reflect on maybe the biases or the prejudices that they hold. But at the same time, I think that's a really big ask for you know every woman to do that or every person of colour to do that in every room that they walk into. So I appreciate that, like, for me, that's like, yeah, that's how Josie would do it, but that's not necessarily how someone else would do it. Um, you know, if you're a coder, maybe you just want to be able to sit down, pop your headphones on and do good work mm. and have that work appreciated. Um, and, you know, and, and you know, that's a great way to, to try and affect change, you know, just get more feminist code out there, yeah, for example. Yeah, silently. <laughs> yeah, silently. So I think there's, there's many different ways, um, but, yeah, I, this is the way that definitely works for me. Okay, I want to hear much more about the different ways that have worked for you and how you have started to attack the different biases that are ingrained within AI. So to kick us off, please, Josie, will you tell me the first rule that you have broken? 
The first rule that I've broken is that feminism isn't a career choice. And um, what do you mean by that? Well, I I mean feminism is is something that I've been able to bring into all of the work that I do. And it's in both an, you know, explicit and implicit way. You know, just because I'm a girl doesn't mean I can't do the things that I want to do. And similarly, you know, just because I have a career and I'm passionate and and I want to have success doesn't mean I have to hide my feminism to get it. And actually, I think building a career that's been led by my feminist values has really held me in good stead. Um, and, And it means that at the moment, I'm lucky enough to be doing work that I'm really passionate about and seems to be gaining traction as well and and other people seem to be interested in. So, I mean, lucky me. And when you were growing up, did you even realise what feminism was? Like in your household, was it uh, discussed? And how did you learn to define feminism for you? I think, to be honest, I don't know if I adopted the term feminism properly until I was sort of like late high school. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, in my household, my parents were really conscious of modelling kind of equal household labour, um, sort of sharing. Um, We were part of a like a carpool to get us to school in the morning. And it was pretty much all of the local mums and my mum and my dad. He was the only dad who was involved in, you know, picking up one of the carpool shifts. Um, So just that kind of, I guess, never explicitly labelled as, you know, this is what feminist parenting looks like, Mm. but it just was always present and it was never... Yeah, it was, it was something that, I mean, credit to um, both my parents has just maintained that, you know, just, we, you know, we always treat my brother and I the same. They always sort of shared equal load of parenting. My dad had his own business. My mum was a very senior civil servant. Um, so both careers important and, you know, those were both respected and, and celebrated. So, yeah, I think it was just like the normal for mm, me. That's so interesting because yeah. often... I don't know, when I think about activism, in my head I create a backstory that the person who is this kind of ardent activist has had to rebel against a force in their personal life to therefore become Mm. political. But it sounds like for you it was just part of the status quo. So it wasn't like you were rebelling against something. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. And I think it was, you know, maybe the... (laughs) confronting the reality that the rest of the mm. world wasn't like that and and me being as stubborn as I am just being like well that's plainly ridiculous and you know we've got to change that so like in high school final year of high school the Australian government were bringing in a paid parental leave scheme for the first time government paid parental leave scheme and so while my friends are studying for exams and going to parties and all that kind of stuff I'm lecturing them on the different elements of the paid parental leave scheme why it's important and why they should know about it you know and these are young women who are 16 17 like Josie I do not care and how did that make (laughs) you feel that they didn't care I felt I felt so frustrated that they couldn't see how the world was stacked against them um, and, you know, from one perspective, you, it's like, hello, I'm Josie, I'm going to tell you, you know, why you're living under patriarchy and, you know, you've got to struggle ahead of you. Like, mm. no one wants to have that conversation. Um, I'm just imagining, like, a 16-year-old you <laughs> in your, like, school hall. I love it. <laughs> like, come on, everybody, say it after me. Smash the patriarchy. Like, no, no one, no one's doing that. And also when, you know, the word feminist has got so many negative connotations with it, um, 
you know, and, and, you know, to be a feminist meant to, you know, not be able to have any fun, not mm. be able to wear makeup, you know, all this stuff, um, which I never adopted myself, really. It was, well, actually, to be fair, let's be real. The things that I adopted that were kind of stereotypically feminist were mainly to cover my own laziness. Like, I just couldn't be bothered dealing with makeup. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I'm a feminist. Mm. I need to wear makeup. And I'm like, no, I cannot be bothered. And within a school environment, how was that received? Um, were you in a mixed school? No, single sex. Right. So, so, and that as well, my school environment was implicitly very feminist. The school was always saying, no matter what you want to do, if you do the work, if you put your mind to it, we will support you and we will marshal the resources to help make you successful. But you have to do the work. And I think that is very, you know, and you would be judged on the merits of your you know, the work that you do and the ideas that you have. Um, and that's a very feminist message as well. So, I mean, to be honest, I was preaching to young women who maybe hadn't really encountered explicit sexism ever in their lives. Mm. And so what I was saying wasn't really marrying up with their lived reality, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful position yeah. to be in. Yeah, this sounds like an incredibly privileged mm. upbringing. Very. So at what point after you left school did you start to recognise that, as you said, the patriarchy was against you? I think... So it was actually while I was at school going to parties with, um, you know, with boys. Mm. It was very exciting. And, <laughs> was it? No, yeah. I'm joking. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> well, strapping young Australian lads <laughs> is probably just as pimply and oily as, you know, and nervous as all the ones over here. Um, so I think it was, I don't know, it was that, you know, you encounter that sort of benevolent sexism about, oh, you're so cool for a girl. Mm. Or, you know, these expectations about, you know, if you like making out with someone, what that might lead to. And, you know, there's never a kind of a conversation around consent. There's never a conversation around contraception. Um, You know, and it's just very, it just assumes these, you know, gendered power dynamics. And because you're a teenager and no one's really properly talking to you about respectful relationships, there's no language, there's no vocab to kind of advocate for yourself and genuinely um, enter into dialogue with someone, you know, of the opposite gender, you know, about these things. So it was very, it was very, it was very difficult to try and navigate that while trying to, you know, I, you know, I'm up for a boy kissing me. Yeah, that would of course. be great. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, being that angry feminist, like I was introduced to people at parties as a teenager as the feminist. Mm. And so, you know, then I'd have all these like boys coming up to me for the wrong reason, boys coming up to me um, and saying, okay, well, you know, but what about this? What about this? And trying to challenge my feminism. And I'm like sitting there with a beer, just like, I want to go dance to Britney Spears with my friends. Like, mm. I'm really not up for this for the next three hours. But I managed to find a way of molding those conversations and sort of turning it back on these, these, you know, these teenagers and just saying, well, okay, but that's a good point. Yeah. What about dads who, um, you know, don't get to have equal custody of their kids during divorce because there's an assumption they can't be good parents? Yeah, that is shit, actually. Mm. And just, yeah. Well, what do you think? What do you think? And... <clears throat> you know, not every time, but most of the time I was able to turn the conversation around and then at the end these guys like, yeah, you're right, that is bullshit, <laughs> you know, and like, so so I think it's, half of it is, you know, the stereotypes and half of it is really trying to find the language to connect with people about the issues that feminists talk about. And clearly this was something that you were beginning to be known for within your social circle. So how did it lead you into a career path that was defined by feminism? So I ended up going to uni in in Melbourne doing an arts degree um, 
in international studies and I did, I looked at the, a feminist critique of the war on terror. So one of the things that the Bush administration did when they sent troops into Afghanistan after 9-11 was justify that invasion by saying, we're here to save the women and children. And so my thesis looked at, okay, if that, let's say that was the case, um, what was the impact of that on the lives of women and children in Afghanistan? And in effect, what happened was, you know, the American patriarchy was like, yeah, yeah, we're here to save the like women and children, you know, knight in shining armor stuff to justify their presence in Afghanistan. In response, the Afghani patriarchy was like, well, actually, we treat our women very well. Thank you very much. Mm. You can, you know, go away. So there's all this like, you know, anti-imperialism stuff going on as well as the sort of, you know, patriarchal stuff. And what happened to the women and children was any sort of liberal feminist movement in the country was had to go underground. And the only efforts um, that could remain that were focused on empowering women and children were activities that would fit very squarely within a, an Islamic framework. And that's, you know, and that's not that that's a bad thing. You know, that isn't a very effective way of creating change, but it just narrowed what that, that field could look like. And it really constrained the types of activities that the, you know, the women's movement in Afghanistan could do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you've got these two sort of groups of people going, no, 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 wow, we're here to save the women. And actually you made life a whole lot worse for them. And so that was my first taste of embedding feminism in the things I was looking at. So I did an international studies degree rather than, you know, gender studies. But then I embedded a feminist perspective into US foreign policy, into nuclear proliferation, into all these things. And as you're starting to kind of unravel or dig deep into politics that we've been brought up with, I just imagine that rage that you felt as like a school kid where your friends were like, I don't really care. Did that feeling of, um, I don't know, dissatisfaction with the kind of blindness of your peers exacerbate through your studies? Yeah, I think it did. And I think it, you know, because at the same time, I was trying to figure out what kind of feminist I was. So I actually at university, I I really adopted the label in a way that I probably hadn't begun to at high school. So in, um, in, I think it was maybe my second year of uni. Oh, was it third? One of the two. Um, I did, uh, it was my one of my only kind of gender studies classes with a woman called um, Sheila Jeffries, a professor, and um, she's a radical feminist. I believe she's in the UK now. And she did this module on feminist theories of international relations and looked at gender power dynamics and, you know, said very, I think she really pushed students to to understand radical feminist theory. And I didn't agree with all of it, but in one of the classes she was talking about under a system of patriarchy, there is no point at which a woman can actually fully consent to sex with a man. And, you know, we're all 20 years old. That's a very confronting thing to hear. Yeah. And so really sort of pushing the boundaries on, okay, you know, the different strands of feminism, the different ways to analyse the power dynamics and the different ways of understanding how that then relates to your own personal life is like very confronting um, and also takes for like a lot of soul searching. So I remember there being lots of heated discussions um, over a you know, couple of years between me and my friends and to give them credit, they saw me sort of bouncing off some more of the extreme ideas that I'd don't subscribe to now but you know mm. at the time really felt there was definitely like a visceral kind of where do I place this rage yeah, where do exactly. I place this feeling that 
where it's just a great a continuous ongoing day-to-day injustice that we have to like survive under mm-hmm. you know and this is from like a white feminist perspective as well so it's really only the tip of the iceberg um and so where did that rage take you next so you you, you studied you you clearly kind of enhanced your understanding of what feminism meant for you where did it take you after that I, so I was able to do a public affairs internship through my university degree and I was placed with a feminist organisation called the YWCA and um, I was able to do a sort of, you know, a big sort of public affairs policy piece on body image and, you know, poor body image being an, an outcome of you know, media with mm. Photoshop, with unrealistic images of women, with stereotypes, with all that sort of stuff. and. What the YWCA gave me was, for the first time I was in a space, probably the first time since leaving high school, I was in a space where I could just turn up, be myself, and have an idea or have a very strongly held opinion. Um, And they would turn around and go, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Or, you know, if you want to do that thing, that sounds great. Mm. Of course you can do it. What, What support can we provide you? And that unwavering just support and confirmation and perhaps like removal of struggle yeah, to be exactly. heard or listened to yeah exactly and it just oh it just felt like I'd found my my place and so from there um I'm still involved with the YWCA today I'm co-chair of the YWCA of Great Britain I've been to two of our world councils it's just an awesome global family that they're never going to get rid of me basically mm-hmm. um but from there I sort of you know did a lot of volunteering with them I then got involved with uh, UN Women Australia. They had, at the time, they had a youth chapter set up in Melbourne to do sort of fundraising and education events in line with the UN Women Australia priorities, um, which is really cool. And, you know, somehow they just gave us free reign to do stuff, um, which I think they, they maybe lived to regret, but it was a huge amount of, you know, energy, enthusiasm, and, and we we're really proud of the impact we were having. We ran school conferences to get young people, including young men, to talk about feminism and think through, you know, how it might apply to their lives. We did fundraising events. We, um, you know, and I really tried to recreate that why space. How do you know? How do you create that space that invites all types of young women in and make them feel that they are heard unreservedly? You know, there's no caveat. There's no, you know, you just need to be less shrill or mm. you just need to be more likable. None of that. There's no, you're, you know, no one would ever say to someone in that space, you're too this or not enough that. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunately rare. So we're, you know, we're, was really proud of that and I think being able to channel you know while I was doing the sort of more intellectual feminist stuff in my studies I could then channel this more kind of activist energy Mm. into these established spaces like the YWCA and UN Women Australia. And how did that then lead you into AI? Where, Where did you meet AI for the first time? So I then I went into government because I'm like, well, you know, social impact, values alignment. But I realised... Those after... boys at school would have been like, oh, we knew she'd go into politics. In yeah. The end. <laughs> Public servant written all over her. Um, and, yeah, talking about like, paid parental leave. <laughs> it's a 16-year-old. Um, and I just, I, I loved it from an intellectual perspective, but, you know, they don't really do innovation. Well, when I was in government. You know, I was sort of every time I sort of tried to do something slightly differently for the sake of it, the attitude was, um, well, we tried innovation once and that's not really 
what we do here. And as someone that's like a total novice in AI, what do you mean by innovation? So innovation is really thinking about how can you do things differently and then and then doing the work to implement that. Right. So, so um, you're working in government and you're recognising that there's little room for innovation. What then drives you to find something else? Uh, basically, I... I guess I was burning out within government because I was trying to push all this stuff and not getting any traction. So I moved to London in a very dramatic way of quitting my job. Um, Because you felt that Australia, like, wasn't willing to change. Yep. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to get into a position of influence, I would need to jump through all these hoops that would actually grind me down. So by the time I got to a position of influence to try and change something, I would have lost all the fight. Do you still feel that about Australia now? Um, I think it's changed. It's definitely changed. I've been away five years and I think it's definitely changed. And I think the bushfires at the moment in Australia are absolutely of a scale we've never experienced. And the way that I'm observing from afar, it's, it is really shaking, um, Australians in how in in the scale in the damage in the you know we're losing over a billion of our wildlife mm. with these fires and um it's just yeah so i think that is going to accelerate the appetite for doing things differently mm. and that's in a weird way why that space exists in the uk the global financial crisis and austerity has really put pressure on how things are done you know just doing it because this is how we've always done it doesn't work anymore and there's no money to keep operating in that way so leaving Australia where at the time you know there was enough money there was enough um, for people just to continue you know doing things how they normally did it moving here where half the councils were looking at a financial cliff edge um, pressure to change is absolutely immediate and so I you know joined a local council, started working in service improvement and signed up to do my master's at Goldsmiths, which was a master's of innovation. Right. And sitting in the lecture hall for the first innovation module, um, sitting there very excited and I'm thinking, oh, for, for this subject, I'm going to make an app that's going to be really exciting. And uh, my lecturer opened, the lec- opened this session by saying, we're not going to waste our time talking about driverless cars. That's going to be a thing. What we're talking about is super artificial intelligence and how it's going to change the world. And I sat there as someone who had argued at the pub a week earlier that driverless cars were like never going to be a thing, um, sat there thinking, oh my God, this is not what I was prepared for. And as my lecturer went into more and more detail about how AI was going to be embedded across all aspects of society, talking about who was you know, really leading the innovation in this space, I realized that there were no policy or social impact brains in the room when this stuff is being built and when decisions were being made about how it was going to be deployed. And I thought, oh my God, we are just moving so quickly towards some kind of disaster that is really going to impact the most vulnerable in our societies. And while, granted, I'm maybe not up to speed with this technology right now, they need a brain like mine in the room. Mm. And and that's sort of where I thought, okay, this this is where I need to start focusing and I need to start learning and I need to start asking questions. What made you have that realisation that there was no one in those rooms, those innovation rooms, um, that was looking at these things with a feminist perspective? What, what was the kind of turning point? 
It was seeing the examples that were being shared in the lecture series. Like what? So one of the things we looked at was chatbots and the different use cases for chatbots. So um, the people who would come and talk to us about these different businesses or you know innovations that they were coming up were largely men. They were largely uh, with technical background. Um, and all of the people that were being cited as predicting, you know, how AI was going to change the world were all men, mostly white. And, you know, it was just this sort of this very unquestioned line that it was going to happen and that it was going to be inherently positive for everybody. Mm. And there was no feminist perspective. There was no post-colonial perspective. There was no race perspective. Um, and... It just felt like it's really a, a homogenous group of people that are driving this and driving it from business yeah. rather than from, say, a university or a government perspective. You've just so kind of eloquently told me the privilege that you had growing up in order to recognise your feminist beliefs. Did you need any form of reassurance for you to make that jump to say, well, now feminism is going to be my career? Did you need, to, did you need some form of reassurance from someone to say that's OK, you go do that or not? I, I, how do I say this without sounding like a complete wanker? Please do sound um, like a wanker. You I, won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I am who I am, right? And it just, I think it got to the point where, and this is what I learned when I was in government, was there is no way for me to, to make myself small or fit into a certain box without there being negative consequences. So by the time I quit government, it was because I had a migraine every month that I was in the public service because of the the stress of trying to fit what they wanted me to be. And I finally realized this is impacting my health and I'm feeling quite miserable at the same time. So, so I think it was more, you know, really trying to be true to myself and, and may, and I, think this is the product of growing up in a very feminist household of just you know and then being able to spend time in spaces like you know YWCA and and UN women like they that's where I felt healthy energized motivated impactful and and that was by following my feminism and so it never consciously occurred to me that 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 I needed permission to do that because I I was lucky enough to keep finding the spaces where that permission was was granted unreservedly so you had this awakening Mm -hmm. Where did it take you? How did you throw yourself into AI? So I sat there and very naively asked myself, hmm, I wonder if there's a feminist perspective of artificial intelligence. And like this is just a mark of how far out of my comfort zone I was. So there's an entire scholarship called Feminist Science and Technology Studies. And yes, they had heard of artificial intelligence. And yes, there was a feminist um, critique and perspective on that. So um, I found it mm-hmm. and went, oh, my goodness, like how, how has this passed me by in such an you know, immense way? So you know, threw myself into my research project, which rather than building an app, I looked at that that interaction layer between, you know, the general public and this new amazing technology and looking at it from the perspective of chatbots. So chatbots are our kind of day-to-day interaction with artificial intelligence, your Siri, your Alexa, your Katana, your Google Assistant. And the underlying technology, the natural language processing, the automation, you know, all that stuff, that technology is incredible. And we're able to do things that we weren't, we couldn't do otherwise because that technology exists, which is awesome. But when these products were being launched, 
the wrapper around them, the, the layer that you and I would see when we talk to these devices was so sexist, so like baked in stereotypes. And so I started there and I thought, okay, let's have a look at the design that's going on with these voice bots and why are they all represented as white women and does it care like should we care why does it matter does it have a negative impact or am i just like getting you know hysterical over nothing and so looking at these designs and there wasn't a lot of academic scholarship on these the gender designs of this technology specifically so I was looking at a lot of um, newspaper articles and articles online so Leah Fessler a um, reporter at Quartz did one of the first I think critiques of these technologies that gained a lot of traction looking at how they respond to sexual harassment from their human users and if you sexually harass Siri or Alexa they will respond flirtatiously uh, they might even um, just try and be evasive and minimize the behavior, but never actually address it directly. And so that's reinforcing a stereotype around women um, just putting up with harassment or this you know, kind of benevolent sexism. And um, since that report was um, published, uh, Amazon have changed the design of Alexa. So it is much more assertive now about, you know, disengaging when someone sexually harasses Alexa, which is great. But I don't think any of the other chatbots or voice bots, sorry, have caught up. So just looking at, well, if we've got these devices that are spread in there in everyone's pockets, on everyone's laptops, slowly over time of the gender stereotypes that are baked into their design, are they going to seep out? Mm. And are we going to wake up in 20 years and 20 years and realize that the gender stereotypes from 2018, um, 2020 are now kind of baked into our subconscious? And so I'm assuming as you were absorbing all of this information, you realized that this was going to be the career that you were going to embody? Pretty much. Yep. And I thought, holy crap, <laughs> I work in technology now, apparently. <laughs> I think you've already jumped into it, but um, I want to really explore this in much more detail. So can you tell me the second rule that you have broken, please? The second rule that I have broken is believing that technology is neutral. And in looking at these voice assistants and looking at how they are designed, you know, apparently Siri is genderless. Apparently it's, what's the line? Genderless like a cactus or something like that. <laughs> That's which, really funny. Which, Sorry that it's a cactus. I know, of all the things. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think this is really emblematic of the problem and why a brain like mine needs to be in the room. So I don't think these companies set out to, you know, pull the wool over our eyes in terms of, you know, secretly in the boardroom meetings, they're cackling because, aha, gender stereotypes live another day. And, you know, I don't think that's what's going on. But, you know, if you are someone who believes that technology is neutral and you come out of the sort of scientific discipline of objectivity, you could convince yourself that because our intention was not to reinforce gender stereotypes, even though we gave it a Swedish woman's name and recorded a white woman's voice for the for Siri, um, it's still genderless. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it just shows that, that that capability around social impact, around understanding how these design choices could possibly have a negative impact, um, I just think that capability wasn't necessarily present or it wasn't pr present at a critical mass to sort of help affect the decision making. And why do you think that was? I think that's because until now, sort of innovation in the technology space 
has really been driven out of universities or via kind of government funding. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a sort of layer of oversight to make sure the social impact aspects are taken into account. So what that means for business is when an innovation becomes available in the form of technology, for example, they government has usually set up the right regulatory environment for business to just pick that thing up and make money out of it mm-hmm. and not have to really think about the social impact of that because government has already taken care of it. But with AI, it's being driven at this amazing speed by companies like Microsoft and Google, and they've got the resources to do it. But they're so far ahead of government that that regulatory environment that does the thinking around social impact, it doesn't exist at the moment. And so they're realizing, oh, okay, we didn't previously have to worry about that or invest in that capability, but now we do. And so, but they're realizing it with these products already live and being used by, you know, thousands and thousands of people at any one time. So, so we're seeing now a shift. And so when, you know, Google brings out its ethical AI principles, that's part of the company realizing, oh, actually, this is a capability gap that we haven't had to worry about previously, but we really do need to worry about it now. And this isn't just to do with feminism. This is to do with all forms of intersectionality. I was reading that in 2016, Google had to delete the auto searches, I'm sure you know this, for Jews and Muslims. So when the word Jew was typed into the search bar, the suggestion was Jews should be wiped out. That was the first thing that came up. And for Muslims, you type Muslims in and the, the suggested phrase is Muslims are bad. So Google had to go back and delete all of the kind of search engines surrounding those two religions. How does that happen? Just as someone that is like a total novice, I don't understand how that is created in the first place. Exactly. So that's, and that's, this is like where this interesting, this interesting idea around tech being neutral and objective kind of comes into play and it sort of exposes the biases within the these organisations. So, so with search results, when it's sort of, has the sort of you know that suggested you know auto fills your query um that is an amalgamation of all the queries that happen at any one time using google search and so they use that to predict what it is that you're searching for so if i start writing in super ted vitamins (laughs) um it's going to you know the the algorithm there mines all of the data of all the searches ever done previously on google search and based on what jumps out in terms of the characters that i'm writing it will try and anticipate what i'm trying to say what i'm trying to search for so in this case it indiscriminately was pulling up phrases that were the most popular and the most frequent and in those cases that you cited that's like racist horrifying stuff um but because the data never lies or it's neutral or objective google didn't see for itself a role in curating what was thrown up because it didn't think about the social justice implications of that kind of free-for-all so do you think then that ai should should reflect the data or should lead the data do you know what i mean it feels very chicken and egg yeah totally and i think it's really has to be a case-by-case basis right so in when all these sort of issues keep coming up people try and find a one-size-fits-all solution and the reason it's so complicated is because i think it differs context to context for the google search those sorts of things because Google is a company because it's providing a service, even though it's free, you know, it's still the things that are available on its platform, they 
are an extension of the values of Google as a company. And so when mm. the auto search is racist, it actually makes a company look racist because they've not considered this. They don't think it's a problem. They don't think they need to put anything in place. And, you know, I, I think we really need to think about what do these companies stand for and what you know, there needs to be some kind of advocacy position. So, for example, when Amazon redesigned Alexa to deflect sexual harassment, that's, to me, that says Amazon doesn't want to be associated with sexual harassment. You don't want, and I think that's important perspective to take. You know, we need to be realistic about what motivates these companies, what's important, and also the impact of negative press. It actually gives us an in to talk about these issues, mm. you know, seriously and make some actual actual change. Do you think it's possible that gender could become irrelevant within AI or do you think there is a, a kind of place for it? Yeah, and I think it's because sometimes, so this is a thing with bias. So people assume that bias is always bad. And when you're talking about artificial intelligence, in order for it to work, you need to serve it up a heap of data. And because I'm Australian, I say data. I don't say <laughs> data because I think weird. I might now adopt data. <laughs> data. Um, and so you need to give it a whole lot of data. And the artificial intelligence bit is putting that data through a heap of very complex calculations that's powered by computation. It's basically an enormous calculator. And the bias in the data is the tendency of the data to, sh to show you one picture or one type of truth over another. So, mm. um, you know, when you search for something, the bias in the data tends to the more frequent searches. Um, and that's actually what you want it to do most of the time. So I think if we're building a service where the aim is to challenge gender stereotypes, we do want to make sure gender is present and the bias tends in the direction that will challenge gender stereotypes in the minds of the people using that service. So that might mean, for example, Google Translate. There was a study that showed that if you translated he is a nurse into Turkish, I think it was Turkish, and then back again into English, because of the way the translate algorithm had been powered, it more closely associated nurse with she mm -hmm. than nurse with he. So when it, they translated from Turkish, which I believe is gender neutral, back into English, it changed from being he is the nurse to she is the nurse. And so those biases within that, um, that library of words, mm. for example, actually reinforce gender stereotypes, put them back in where they hadn't been present before. Yeah, how interesting. Yeah, and so I think we're still looking at, you know, how can we, where we want to, um, remove the bias or keep the bias, but maybe um, just keep track of it, or maybe we want to flip it all together. So those are decisions that need to be made more on a case-by-case -case basis, I believe, and I think that's what the industry is often looking at, is how can we build up our tool of techniques, but also ways of making decisions so that we have confidence that we're making the right one. So, yeah, I think this is actually the perfect place for you to tell me your third broken rule. My third broken rule is that in artificial intelligence, the coders are the experts. So when I go into a room with my big earrings and I had a baby recently and I was working on a data science project that was all men except for me and so I would enter the room the size of a planet mm. <laughs> um, and you know you know being a pregnant woman in this space is you know 
<laughs> definitely you feel the temperature change in the room slightly. Um, you know, so being... In what way? Well, it was more... Not only are they not used to having a, a woman in the room, but they're not used to having a pregnant woman in the room. So, like, you know, do I need to have a cup of tea? Do I need... you know? So just trying to... I guess it was... It made them realise that... And not not in a bad way, you know, this, these colleagues that I really enjoy working with, but just made them realise, oh, there might be a new set of needs now in the room that we haven't had to be thinking about before. Yeah. And, you know, and just having that pause for thought, um, which is, um, you know, as I've mentioned before, I, I don't mind that, that sort of stuff. So for me, I, I still felt confident in those spaces and everyone got over it eventually it was fine but I really was the size of a plant oh, I don't I don't want to hear that I don't <laughs> think that's true that's <laughs> um apparently from behind you couldn't tell I was pregnant and then I'd turn around and it was just like what oh my it's God. amazing <laughs> <laughs> um but it's you know quite often these rooms the the data scientist the data engineer the um the head of analytics you know they're they're very technically brilliant people and they're very skilled um, but they see this technology from one perspective, from that, you know, the, you know, the quality of the data perspective, the, um, the confidence of the outputs, you know, is this something that we can properly use to make decisions with? Whereas what I think we're realizing is that we need more brains than that in the room. We need those brains, absolutely. But we also need the social science brains or the policy brains or the, you know, if you're building a chatbot that is trained on all of your customer complaints data, you kind of need the head of customer complaints in the room to help provide context about that data, to help really narrow down how that system is going to be used, how it's going to affect that, you know, the the customers at the end of the day so so we really need to be blending in um, a multi-dimensional view of artificial intelligence rather than just the you know data plus maths powered by computation bit of artificial intelligence and going into those rooms as a woman and as someone who doesn't know how to code how did it make you feel honestly um i think the thing that i was most nervous about was being able to communicate in a way that built credibility for my perspective. So I very deliberately don't know how to code. If you put something in front of me that was Cody, I'd sort of smile and nod at you and, and quite hastily back away. Um, but the reason I don't code is because I, because of the power of AI, because of the ways in which it's shaping our world already, I shouldn't have to know how to code to be in the room, to understand how it works and to shape how it's being built and the impact it can have because I think there's a democratic need for every type of person to be able to be involved in the building of this technology so when I was in the room and and to be fair this was my first data science project so I was learning so much and so I, I was nervous that I wasn't going to be able to bring my perspective into the process in a way that was effective and I didn't want to you know I guess, leave a negative impression in people's minds so that the next time someone suggested bringing a feminist into the room, they go, oh, well, it's actually more disruptive than helpful. Um, My aim is to open up space, to make things more accessible, to to have even more levels of critical thinking in the room rather than make them more exclusive spaces and with, you know, less people's input. So I guess I was acknowledging that while I was learning, they were also learning too. 
because there really aren't established processes that I'm aware of that mm. are shared broadly about how you incorporate all those views in a data science project, for example. Um, we're all still learning. Um, Did you feel snobbery? It wasn't snobbery. It was more, I don't see how this fits into what I'm used to. Like, I just don't get it. Like, what do you mean? Mm. How does this fit? Like, how, we told you Siri is genderless. How can you be still banging on about this? And because you don't code, ultimately, they can still get that product out there. You're not, yeah. your impact in that room, although great, is not going to, if you weren't there, it's not going to stop the product being released exactly. to the market. Yeah. So how do you have hope that people are going to listen to you? I think I have hope because I know that a lot of people are very driven by their values and they, you know, they wake up every morning and they want to, to build stuff that has a positive impact. And now that there are more conversations around, well, okay, you thought you were doing that, but turns out, you know, there was a lot of racism embedded in this or there was a lot of sexism embedded in this. They really, they don't want to do that, make those mistakes again. So I think there is a lot of goodwill in the industry. I think a lot of people want to be learning more about it. But I can also appreciate that it's a very daunting task to under, try and understand how to change your world, um, how to change your worldview, how to change how you work to be more sensitive to these issues. Um, so I, I get that. And that's where I came up with the feminist chatbot design process. It was really thinking about, okay, so I'm, you know, as the researcher aware of all the, the feminist issues with these designs currently, if I'm a designer or a developer you know, working for a company and I've been told by the product manager, okay, we need to have this new chatbot sort of prototype up and running in two weeks. I don't have time to sit back and go, all right, but what's our feminist critique here? Or, you know, how mm. do I look at our you know, ethical AI principles and, and figure out how to turn that into my day-to-day -day sort of working practice? People don't have time. People don't necessarily have um, that mindset, you know, that, that skill set. You know, not everyone's done a, an arts degree in international studies, um, and that's fine. So I thought about, okay, if I'm in that team and I've got a sprint planning meeting, how can I sit down and start a conversation to try and identify some of these social impact issues? And through my research, I realised that questions are a really effective form of intervention. So I took the Feminist Human-Computer Interaction Framework by an academic called Shaun Bardzel and I smushed it together, which is the mm. technical term. <laughs> I love that word. Smushed it together with the IEEE's Ethically Aligned Design Principles, which were kind of the first global ethical AI principles at the time. Smushed them together to create one piece of paper, series of reflective questions for teams to go through together. And the focus of those questions is to get people thinking, you know, a bit more critically in a bit more sophisticated way about the connection between their design choices and the social impact of their product. And to really just get them focused on how do we answer these questions in a way that makes a product better. Not about like making people feel bad because, you know, maybe they do have a lot of white privilege or you're making people feel bad because it's a room of mainly men. But, you know, those issues, I think, while important, sometimes they can present a barrier to getting someone started on their little feminist journey. Mm -hmm. So it really is, you know, thinking about creating safe spaces for people to learn new perspectives, try new techniques and build better technology as a result. And as an end user, 
you know, speaking to you today has it's kind of like awakened me to question all the things that I just think are neutral. What can we do on the kind of receiving end to check in that things are suiting us as feminists? That's such a great question because quite often with this technology, it's not actually optional. So, like, how would you apply for a job if you didn't have an email address? Mm, I have no idea. Go into the shops. <laughs> I yeah, don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But- you know, you can't really like walk into um, Spotify, for mm. example, and say, can I have a job, please? <laughs> so, you know, some of this technology, it's not actually, it's not actually optional to, to use it or not use it. So I think we need to, while, you know, we can't take on everything ourselves, individual com- consumers, but what we can do is, I guess, be a bit more aware of the breadth of options available so you know messenger facebook messenger versus whatsapp which is also owned by facebook you know in terms of the levels of encryption they're quite different as products and so if privacy is something that you're concerned about you know you choose one product over the other so whatsapp has higher levels of encryption than messenger does for example Um, so i think it's you know it's really keeping an eye on those things as much as you can yeah in a way i want your feminist chatbot to be (laughs) like have a a manual for the end user as well yeah because we're just blind to it or i am i have no idea whether what i'm using kind of matches my political or social views or not i've got no idea yeah and that's a really good point actually because i've been so focused on the sort of who's building the tech Mm. um and we've got things like i've got things in the process and when i say we i'm working with the feminist internet to come up with the next version Um, we're looking at, okay, what's the user research? What does that need to look like to justify the design decisions? Um, but I guess, yeah, as a consumer, like what's the scorecard? Like, how do you know? And that's, that is definitely something that's probably the next frontier. Thank you. I'll take some commission. (laughs) Um, JC, to round things off, would you tell me the one rule that you would never break? I would never break the rule that every perspective has value. I think if we want to make a change, we've got to try and bring as many people on board as possible. And the the reason I feel confident walking into a room and taking up space is because I want there to be more space for everybody. And, you know, try and not only role model that, but then also create space for other people. And if I want to make a change, I need to be able to listen to people that I don't agree with. And I'm not going to start agreeing with them, but I need to understand where they're coming from because their perspective is different to mine. Their lived experience is different to mine. Um, and, and, And if I keep advocating for, you know, we need more perspectives in the room than we have currently, I can't really say Mm. until I don't like what you say. So um, I think... Yeah, in order for me to, and, and I think that's a very feminist perspective, is to, to see, you know, multiple forms of knowledge as having equal types of value. And yeah, so I think it's it's important to, if that's something that I'm advocating for into the tech industry, then I need to be able to practice that myself. Thank you, Josie. You've been an absolute source of knowledge in a whole realm that I know nothing about uh, and now will absolutely take a a hungry interest in. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's wonderful to be on the podcast. (laughs) 